Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Savatis podcast. This week, I have Josh Fine Brown on, and we're going to be talking about osteopathy, but we're also going to be talking about pain and the evolution of pain. And that's really what excited me about listening to one of his lectures last year online. So I could not wait to get him on to the podcast to impart his approach and his view of how the evolution of pain has worked um, and share it with everyone else because I was inspired. So thank you so much for joining me today, Josh. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. I really did mean it. Um, you delivered a online lecture last year to some of the students at BCom, and I sort of snuck in in the back and just like listened to it. Um, and to me, it was such a unique and different way of looking at pain and looking at nociception. And there were some concepts that I hadn't necessarily been exposed to in my training. So I thought, why isn't this guy talking to everyone about this? So that's my aim today. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying. <laughs> and so I want to get just stuck in, really. I mean, what's, I mean, I don't want to reiterate what you said last time, but what's your view on pain and how it's come about and how we perceive it and how it manifests in our bodies? So that's a very big question. Um, I'm just going to pick up on the way in which you described that first. So you said the way in which we perceive pain. Um, and that's a really key insight, I think, is that pain is a perception of ours rather than something that is intrinsic to our biology. When you look at a lot of um, like textbooks in neurology, for example, uh, they say that the nociceptors are pain fibers. Um, and that implies that the pain is located somewhere in the body rather than as a uh, product of our perceptual architecture, the way in which we um, perceive the world um, from our sensory information that we receive. Um, so pain is a perception, let's just start with that, a perception that is informed by our whole individual subjective context. So what I mean by that is our lives up to the point of the present. Um, which means that pain for each individual is completely subjective because we all learn about pain in a very slightly different way to each other. Um, somebody who has grown up in a household where they have been uh, trying to be coddled a lot, for example, where perhaps their parent has been very scared of um, them falling over and hurting themselves. Mm -hmm. And every time this little child is running around and they trip over or they're going a little bit too fast, it's like, no, no, don't run, you might hurt yourself. Oh, don't do that. It's going to learn about pain in an extremely different way to somebody who is like um, perhaps thrown out into the street and encouraged to go and jump off like rocks and, and buildings and things like that, like maybe doing exercise or parkour or something, they, or skateboarding, these, these kind of experiences teach you an entirely different relationship with, um, with pain because it's a part of those experiences and you learn that actually in order to achieve being good at skateboarding or parkour or something like that, yeah, you need to suffer a little bit of pain, but it doesn't cause necessarily long-term harm. Um, so our pain experience is informed by what we have learned about pain, um, which means that often pain experiences 
are quite unreliable um, indicators of how much damage is actually in the body. Um, and if pain was exactly, uh, like if pain was nociception, then it would be actually a very reliable indicator of how much damage is in the body. But they're two separate phenomena. So I just wanna, pain is a perception, it's informed by nociception, but they're not the same thing. So for example, for those people who are listening or watching and aren't aware of nociception, can you explain what that concept is? Okay, so I'm gonna start way, 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 way back for this then. This is where a little bit of that evolution is gonna come in. So if you are a unicellular organism in the primordial soup, you've just evolved a nucleus that is able to contain all your DNA and um, you're able to navigate through your environment, the little cilia that pumps you forwards into this like soup that you're swimming in. Um, you're trying your best to survive. Now, in order to survive in that context, what we need is to maintain our physical body, the integrity of that little cell membrane and the contents within the cell. You need to be able to exchange food and waste products with the local environment. You need to be able to move in order to get more food. Um, and you need to be able to regulate your metabolism and the iron balances in, inside the cell. So these kind of basic um, requirements for survival haven't really changed that much from the very beginning of life up to human beings or other animals in the present day. We still need to eat. We still need to protect the physical integrity of our bodies. We still need to make sure that we excrete waste products. We still need to maintain homeostasis and maintain metabolism. Um, and this is where nociception comes in. Nociception evolved as a regulator of our internal physical state structure. So whenever there was a, uh, well, after we were unicellular organisms, we started to become multicellular organisms. We started to develop nervous systems. Nervous systems were uh, able to sense our environment and then communicate to muscles in order to move and respond to our environment. So one of the things that is really important to sense is any threat to the physical body. And this is where nociception developed. It, it picks up any potential threats to our physical body communicates that to the muscular system in order to make some kind of action to move away from that threat. Um, so that's exactly what in our uh, bodies today is that they pick up mechanical stress, chemical stress, or uh, temperature, thermal stress. And when that reaches a threshold where it may cause damage or potential damage to our bodies, they scream at the nervous system and the brain going, hey, you need to pay attention to me here. You need to do something about this. This is noxious. This is potentially dangerous. Can you respond, please? And that shoots up to our brains and then it, it spreads across our whole brain pretty much. And that uh, spreading seems to be the brain's way of trying to interpret what this incoming noxious information from those nociceptors means. And that meaning then may produce pain or may not, depending on a lot of different things. And so where does the, how does the noxious stimuli relate to pain in terms of relating it back to what you said earlier, our perception of it then? Yeah, good question. Okay, so 
let's go back in time once again. So when you have this little uh, multicellular organism, and um, I've been reading a book about um, the by Matt Wilkinson called uh, Eight Different Movements That uh, Change Locomotion. I can't remember exactly the title. Anyway, it talks about how uh, locomotion movement developed in organisms from an evolutionary perspective. And it seemed that the first nervous systems developed in the very early larva of sponges um, in the sea. And there's two ways in which these larvae can move around. They can either crawl along the surface of the seabed, collect their nutrients on the way, and then find a new place to settle, or they can float about in the water. Now, if you are a crawling organism, you have very different requirements for movement than you do as a floating organism. You have ground resistance, and you have to move in a certain direction. It's not possible to move in all different directions because you're moving on a two-dimensional surface. Now, as soon as you're moving it in a direction, um, then it would make sense to make sure that all of your sense organs are in the front of your organism so that you're able to pick up the things that are coming at you first, whether that's food, and that's usually closest to where your mouth parts are as well. Um, and it also requires that those sense organs then are able to communicate with the muscles in order to direct the movement towards the places where the food may be and away from the places that the danger might be. Um, and so this is where that kind of um, polarization of all our sensor organs and our brains in the head began when we started to have to move along um, this kind of substrate. Evolution did its thing and it maintained that kind of architecture, which is present in us today, where we have this head that is uh, containing most of our most potent and specialized sense organs and it communicates with our body in order to move. Now there's a problem that occurs when you start to get bigger than just a little larva. And that is when you sense something, it takes time for those nerves to communicate with the muscles. So if your predator that is coming at you is quicker at sensing where you are and moving towards you than you are at sensing where it is and getting away, then you're gonna die. Your genes aren't gonna be passed on to the next generation. So, evolutionary pressure was to reduce the amount of time from sensing to responding. And when you um, have a larger and larger organism, this becomes more and more important because you have a much more time delay between sensing something and responding to something. So it seems what our nervous systems develop the capacity to do is to predict incoming information before we even sense it. So um, it seems to work that when you are um, moving around in your environment, you're learning about what that environment contains. And that learning, for example, if you're a little uh, fish, you're swimming in a certain direction and you see a shape in the distance, that shape, and you're predicting that shape is a predator, you're able to then respond to that before that predator has even started to attack you because you've changed your predictions about what this might be to be a predator and you're much more likely to escape. So the way in which these predictions seem to work is that we form, and particularly in human beings, we are experts at this, we predict what uh, we may see in our environments based upon our past experience. Um, and that prediction 
is either matches the incoming sensory information, if it's an accurate prediction, then the sensory information doesn't need to update this prediction. And so it's a seamless transition. Yeah, our predictions are accurate in the world, we can navigate it seamlessly. Or the predictions that we make are not quite accurate. And if they're not quite accurate, then the sensory information comes in and it updates the predictions that we have until they match what the sensory information is, and then we can act smoothly. So let me give you an example of what that might be like. So you're walking along the pavement, the pavement is flat, you're predicting that this pavement is going to be flat. And so every time you take a step on a flat pavement, you perceive no effort in that. Your predictions are matching exactly what the incoming sensory information is. Until you reach a paving slab that's sticking up a bit, you trip and suddenly your sensory information about that flat pavement no longer matches. And so you suddenly have to update very rapidly the prediction about that flat pavement. You become aware suddenly that you are tripping over. You're not able to continue the thought process that you had before. Your hypotheses are updated and then you readjust yourself until your predictions match again. Now, this is how we come to perceive anything that we perceive. So we perceive things based upon a prediction about what's in the world and then matching that or not matching that with our sensory information. So therefore, perceptions are informed by our expectations, our imagination, our memory, and they're also informed by the environment through our senses. Now, this is where it relates to pain because Pain is exactly the same thing. We make uh, pain from what we expect to uh, be receiving from this incoming sensory information. For example, if I am in the, so I, I live in the country and um, I'm gonna kind of caveat one of Laura Mosley's famous stories a little bit here. So in the country, when you're walking along and there's, uh, I live on Dartmoor, so there's a lot of gorse bushes, they're really spiky, they create a lot of grazes. Um, I've learned in my life that grazing myself on a gorse bush uh, doesn't cause any long-term harm for me. So when I walk through gorse bushes and I get grazes, often I will get back home and I'll look at my legs and I'll be like, oh, wow, I've got loads of like grazes on there, but I didn't feel that at all. Because my prediction about whether this is actually gonna harm me or threaten me, um, was that I've learned that that is non-threatening to my survival, right? Now, in, in Lorimer Mosley's story, he's got a very similar context. He's out in the bush in, in Australia and he walks through and he feels a little nick on his leg. And he's like, oh, there's something in my leg there, okay. And uh, walks down into the, the goes swimming and wakes up in the hospital. Have you heard this story? No. Yeah, so he, he wakes up in the hospital and he's like, oh, like got tubes in him and he was like in a coma and he nearly died. Now, it turns out that he was bitten by a brown snake when he felt that little nick on his leg. It was a deadly snake that bit him and um, he woke up in hospital. Now, he recovered, everything's fine and he decides to go for a swim in the, in the bush once again. And the experience has updated his predictions about what that scratch may potentially mean, right? So when he's walking along, he suddenly walks past this uh, like sharp bit of twig, it scratches him on the legs, and he's like, oh my God, and it's absolute agony. Because the expectation of what that incoming nociceptive information means 
has changed to something that's threatening for life. So it's become much more threatening. The prediction about what that means is much more threatening and it influences the perceptual experience that we have. That's such an interesting way of looking at it. And you talked about earlier how, you know, traditionally we're taught like pain is received in the body and there's not this direct connection made between perception, between what the brain does or what the brain changes in that whole process that changes that whole experience, mm. for example. And so I wonder what other factors, you mentioned a couple, but what are the other factors that can influence that mismatch of expectation and what actually happens? Yeah, indeed. So um, this is where it's useful to kind of understand um, a little bit about where the brain interprets nociceptive information. So when that nociceptive information reaches the brain, it goes via our brain stem, which is responsible for our regulatory functions like our heart rate, our um, like blood pressure, uh, and the sympathetic or autonomic functions of our bodies. So branches off through the brainstem and then goes into the insula, which is responsible for our internal sense, our interoception, that we are able to sense our internal world. Um, and into our limbic system, which seems to process um, the emotional information, into our somatosensory cortex, which gives us the location and intensity of incoming information, and to our prefrontal cortex, which gives our, us our thoughts and our rational uh, executive functions. So this is what I mean when it spreads throughout the whole brain is that when we're trying to interpret uh, incoming nociceptive information, we're using our apparatus that determines the intensity and location. We're using our apparatus that appraises how this is affecting us emotionally. We're using our apparatus that is rational with our thinking processes and our language-based processes. And we use all of these three uh, parts of our our brains in order to interpret the meaning of this incoming information. And the meaning that determines how um, unpleasant that pain experience is, is how threatening is this to me in this moment. So our pain experiences are based upon how threatening we're interpreting that information. So for example, if somebody has, um, they've got a neighbor, their neighbor has recently had their hand amputated because they had an abscess in their wrist. They didn't get treated. Um, they've been told the story and how upset this person is that they can no longer work because they don't have a hand anymore. And they wake up in the night with a pain in their wrist that is very similar to the pain that they heard their neighbor describing. And it's um, reminding them of all the stories about having their hand amputated. Suddenly they have much more threatening expectations about what this pain means than somebody who may have just woken up with a wrist pain without that previous experience. And that is likely to make that pain experience occupy much more of their attention and be much more unpleasant. And that's really interesting because we've talked about sort of those examples where that perception of pain is amplified because of what your previous experiences have taught you or what your situation is. Are there instances where that pain and that expectation are matched equally or conversely where that pain is actually less than what it could be or should be? Yes, definitely. 
Now, what do you mean by could be or should be in this context? So, for example, you talk about, you know, the Laura Mosley story about getting bitten. And I'm thinking of maybe, I mean, this is based on Grey's Anatomy. So let's just, you know, take this with a pinch of salt here because um, it's Hollywood and sensationalized. But like when people have major traumas or accidents, for example, um, we know the um, and they have sort of like, you know, stab wounds or, or bullet wounds and, and they sort of go around and they don't really feel that expected pain that we would expect someone with a stab wound or a bullet wound to have what happens in that instance mm, mm, yeah very good question so um this is about how our neurochemistry regulates nociceptive inputs so what i mean by that is that the passage from receiving information about noxious stimulation in the periphery has to go via the nociceptors, either C fibers or D fibers into our spinal cord, and then up to our brain. Now, this um, nociceptive information, the amount of information that gets to the brain is regulated by uh, various different chemicals, namely adrenaline, uh, endorphins, endocannabinoids as well. Um, now, in the situation that you mentioned with a car accident or soldiers in war, um, they have a huge amount of some of these chemicals circulating around their systems. So adrenaline blocks the uh, nociceptive information from actually getting to the brain in the first place. So they may have a lot of damage, but their brain isn't receiving any threatening information because they have high adrenaline in that system. And they have high adrenaline in their system because they're likely in a situation where they have to remove themselves from that situation in order to survive. So same would be present, for example, if you're running away from a tiger and you break your ankle, you're likely to continue running away from that tiger because this ankle can wait until you've got away from the threat. And when you've got away from the threat and your environment is more safe, then your adrenaline system will stop being so active and suddenly the pain will be able to, or the nociceptive information will be able to reach the brain and your brain will go, oh my God, we need to pay attention to this because we need to heal it. Um, now, endorphins, which are uh, the same chemicals as uh, heroin or morphine, um, but we produce them naturally within our own systems, um, they also regulate pain for us, um, but they seem to behave in a different way. So endorphins are present when we have loving, connected relationships with people. Um, and I found this incredibly interesting because it seems that... Um, Endorphins mediate between the mother and the child, along with oxytocin. And our endorphin system in our bodies um, is based upon that relationship in early childhood. And if you don't have a good attachment with your primary caregiver, then your endorphin system is not uh, had enough of the neurochemicals to be able to form the receptors. And so there is less receptors in your brain available for endorphins. So therefore you cannot experience that kind of loving attachment as easily. Now, if that's uh, that individual then goes, and, and I, there is not research that I've read about this yet, and it would be a really interesting study to do, is that whether people who've had attachments that are um, causing their endorphin system to be less active are predisposed to chronic pain when they're older or increased pain sensitivity. Interesting. Um, what I do know is that it predisposes them to addiction to pain medication. So if they find that they have morphine 
after they've had a pain experience and they've had this attachment history, suddenly they're like, oh my God, I feel like I'm loved for once in my life. It feels like a hug. My pain goes away. I feel like everything is good in the world. I need more of that. And so predisposes to addiction to those chemicals. Wow. And so you really tapped into the psychology of pain in that way. I mean, yeah. I was, it's, it's, it's interesting that you talk about attachment. I've never really thought about attachment and brain chemicals and, and neurotransmitters. I was literally teaching at, over, on Friday about attachment um, really? to a psychology class. Yeah. And so when you said that, I was like, oh, I just forgot I was doing a podcast for a second. I was in a lecture, <laughs> it felt like, um, but it's interesting how you tap into it because yes, I, I, you know, I talk about attachment theory and how, you know, it was studied and how it's developed and what that means as an expression into adulthood. But I've never really stopped to think about what the other expressions of a, you know, uh, an insecure attachment, for example, would, how it, that might manifest in your brain and what that means in terms of addiction. Never even thought about that. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really fascinated by that um, because, I mean, then this is going to segue into a different conversation slightly away from pain, but if you're cool with that, I'm happy with that. Absolutely. Um, so I'm really interested in what babies experience. Like um, from, a, from a, what I understand about the way in which babies' brains are is they have way, way too many connections between their neurons. So they are born with so many connections between different brain areas that it's... Um, unable to make specific meaning out of the world. We're also born with the least hardwired responses out of any other creature on this planet. So we have to learn everything. We have to learn how to walk, to speak, to move, to do all of these things. Um, so when a baby is born, obviously they're born without language. They're not able to interpret the world in specific targeted bits of information easily. They're born with their senses dulled. They can't see properly until they're sort of much, much older than when they're born. And so if you, if you try and think about what it might be like for a newborn to enter the world, it is a world of feeling. And it's just feeling. You're able to have sensory information incoming, internal information from your digestive system and information from your your touch-based senses, particularly for babies, that's really important because they're used to being warm and, and settled in the womb. And based upon repeated experiences, for example, ah, I um, in my mother's arms, there is a certain sound, a frequency of noises that's associated with this. And she keeps saying, mum, I'm mum, I'm mum to me. And then you start to imitate that because babies learn primarily, in fact, we learn primarily by imitation, which is pretty useful for evolution. Uh, evolutionary purposes anyway we learn by imitation so you start going ma, 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 and suddenly you get a response to that and that response is one of love and attention which is the other thing that we all crave and so you start to then build an association between that sound that you're making with your mouth and movements of your tongue and the feeling of the sound in your mouth with a loving connection with the mother and so you build a meaning associated with that sound and that creates a specific context for that which you then have a word for so when we're children, we're in a process of building these uh, meaning-based uh, expectations about what the sensory information is. Because we need to uh, understand what incoming sensory information means 
if we're going to navigate our muscles in order to then move in our environment in a way that is conducive for our survival. Now, um, this will influence our perception um, because when we are babies, we're constructing our expectations about what sensory information means. And these expectations determine how we interpret that sensory information if our brains are predictive based. We literally do not see or interpret the same sensory information the same way as other people. Um, and this is where meditation becomes very interesting because meditation seems to be a process of um, trying to pay attention not to the expectations that you have, the interpretation of those sensory information, but the, just the sensory information itself. So you get better access to the incoming information rather than the predictions about what that means. So you're more in touch with reality as it is when you're paying attention to your senses rather than paying attention to your thoughts, if you see what I mean. And when you're thinking about a pain experience, I've certainly had pain experiences in the past where I have practiced this, like toothache, for example. I practice this because I read a, a like a Buddhist textbook, a whole truckload of dung. I don't know. It's a, it's a book. I got a section on pain and they said this Buddhist monk had toothache and he didn't experience much pain with the toothache because he welcomed in the pain. He said, hi, pain. I love you. I'm really glad you're here. Thank you very much for letting me know that there's something in my mouth and paid attention to the sensation directly rather than going, oh my God, I've got a toothache. This is the worst thing. I've got to go to the dentist. It's going to be a horrible experience, all of these things. So I was like, wow, okay, if you welcome pain, it can change the experience of it. So I sprained my ankle or I had a toothache. I think both experiences I tried this with and I started to try and pay attention to the actual sensory information that was incoming. The actual sensory information rather than interpreting what this pain means in terms of my body function like actually what is there and welcome to that and it completely changed the experience of pain it became a stretch pressure type sensation with a bit of heat rather than oh my god this means i'm never going to walk again i've <laughs> been there <laughs> right <laughs> and i'm sure other people listening to that have definitely been in that situation yeah for sure so that's interesting so was it through meditation you were able to hone in on that sensory input as yeah. just being that input device rather than your brain amplifying it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rather than your brain ascribing meaning to it. <laughs> so just the sensory information itself. Because that's meditation. Huge. Yeah, right? Like, why aren't we all meditating? Yeah, exactly. Like what I think we all do, because I think that like we seek out the experiences when we're in the present, but we just don't know that that's the same process as meditation for a lot of us. Mm. <laughs> like a lot of us are going to do sports or something like that, where they are having that kind of direct access to their sensory information and paying out all of their attention to it because they've got to like catch a ball or skateboard or do something. And that is the same kind of process as meditation is. It's just with meditation, you are choosing it rather than doing it as an activity. Do you see what I mean? 
Yeah. And I can definitely test that you practice what you preach because I've walked into that staff room several times where you've just been very silent <laughs> and meditative. And I'm like, just sit very quietly. Don't distract him. And then I've seen other staff members try to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, that's not the point, man. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's not the most ideal place to do that. I've started doing it in clinic rooms instead. <laughs> I'm just like, just leave him alone for five minutes. He's in the zone. Stop it. Um, <laughs> So coming back to something you said earlier, you talked about sort of babies, you know, creating these neural pathways and equally, you know, again, I've been watching way too much Grey's Anatomy of late. So just yeah. snap me out of this if, it, if I get it wrong. But, you know, in that sense, you know, this baby comes from this very warm, comforting environment in the womb and it's slap, you know, literally pulled out during the birth process. And so if the baby doesn't have these previous experiences to conceptualize what's going on does that mean they experience pain in a very different way than we would for example or do they experience less pain like how does that work so they wouldn't have the um, language-based interpretation they wouldn't have the kind of clear differentiated emotional-based interpretation of pain they wouldn't be able to say, oh my God, this pain means that I'm never gonna walk again, for example, because they wouldn't really understand what even walking was, right? Mm -hmm. What they have is a very intense incoming felt sense of nociceptive information. That's what they have, but they have no understanding of what that means. So it's gonna be a completely different experience to somebody who's then grown up. So in a way, are we sort of looking to go back to looking at almost that just that pure sensory input as it is rather like, let's go back to what we would like when we were babies, I suppose. Yes, but then that's not very useful for coordinating action or movement, right? Babies have not got a very good repertoire for interacting with our environment, behaving, expressing themselves, moving, so I think the objective is not to get back to what it was like when we were a baby, but to understand how it is that we have learned to interpret the incoming sensory information. It's like, why is it that I am interpreting this sensory information in this specific way? And understanding and opening that kind of box reveals to you how you have learned to interpret your sensory information in your life and therefore why you are interpreting it in this way. And as soon as you have an awareness of those things, it allows you to observe your own mind doing the interpreting. And in the act of observing your own mind doing the interpreting of the meaning of these incoming information, then you have that space to be able to then go, ah, okay, now I have a little bit of choice. I can see what I'm doing. And in the act of seeing what I'm doing, I can now choose something different but i think so many people are so unable to observe their own uh, their own interpretations of the world they're just interpreting the world and that is their immediate experience that trying to say well it's all about you just got to pay attention to the, the sensory information it's not gonna it's not gonna go down well <laughs> It's like, what? You want me to pay more attention to my pain? Why the hell would I do that? I want to get rid of it. You know? <laughs> and that was my next question was that if we pay more attention to it, is it, can it feel worse? Can it feel 
worse than it is in a way. Yeah, and this is where you have to be very specific. It is not about paying more attention to the pain. It is about understanding how you are paying attention to the pain. So is the way in which you're paying attention to the pain directed at how this pain is going to influence your future? Because if that's the case, then it's likely to be, well, this pain means that my future is going to be terrible. In which case, you're going to suffer emotionally much more from that. You're going to interpret that pain based upon those future expectations. Mm. So in that case, you'd have to bring the person to the awareness that they are doing that in the first place. So isn't it interesting that whenever you talk about this pain, you're talking about how you're not going to be able to walk in three days' time. And yet you came to my clinic and you're still able to walk. So if you're trying to bring this into a clinical context um, and you have somebody who is interpreting their pain in a way that is either catastrophizing, for example, which happens a lot in, in treating chronic pain. Oh my God, this pain is going to be with me forever. It means my life is going to be terrible. Everything's so shit. My relationships are falling apart. It's all this pain's fault. Everything is like so much meaning that is attached to that pain. That if you want to try and change that pain experience for somebody who's doing that, you have to start asking very different questions. You have to start asking questions about um, how they feel emotionally about their pain experience. Like, how does this pain and the idea that it's um, like going to ruin your future actually make you feel? Oh, I would get really angry. Or, oh, I get really scared. And you start to inquire and you, and, and you start moving towards territory that looks much more like psychology than it does osteopathy. I was going to say, it, it sounds like you, you've really taken both aspects and you're having to amalgamate both. Yeah, for sure. And, and this is the beauty of coming through the osteopathic um, route towards psychology is that uh, I'm always, every single time, bringing it back to, okay, but how does that influence your body right now? How does this, when you're feeling this anger towards the pain, what is your muscle tension doing? What's your heart rate doing? What is your movements doing? Oh my God, I'm really tense. My stomach's locked up. My heart rate's beating really fast. And it's actually making my pain worse because I'm really furious and tense all the time. So, okay. So, you, well, that's really fantastic that you've noticed that your body has these reactions to these emotional experiences. Let's see if we can just undo that bodily response to it. So if I move your joint, I'm able to just relax this joint now. Can you just let that go? Just pay attention to breathing into that space, letting it go, relaxing it. Okay, when you've let go of that tension that results from your anger, how does this new sensory information from the place that's in pain actually feel now? Oh, it feels a little bit like there's less pressure there. Okay, let's pay attention to that feeling of less pressure. What emotional context is this bringing now that you're in less tension all the time oh yeah i don't feel so angry anymore so it's 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 always kind of recognizing that the interpretation contains emotions contains thoughts contains a lot of different aspects but that the one thing you have the ability to control often is the muscle tension the body the way in which you move and one of the best ways to bring attention back to that present sensation is through hands-on treatment through movement and directing their attention with your language. Can you pay attention to your body now? 
What does your knee feel like? Can you describe those sensations immediately? And often in therapy, they talk about making sure that you're anchored in the present. When you're trying to do like emotional work, particularly with trauma, it's very possible to get re-traumatized by living that memory as if it was happening in the present. And that represents this, this predictive architecture that we're talking about again, right? You are memorying, remembering something. It is changing the predictions that you're making about incoming information. And part of trauma as well is a active like, suppression of the blood supply to your insula, which is responsible for your internal sensations. So you literally cannot feel your incoming sensory information. So you don't have any incoming sensory information to update those predictions and change what it feels like. So you're entirely, your perceptual world is the memory and you relive the trauma. But if you are in an environment where you have the ability to have your practitioner move your body, you are providing new sensory information that is constantly grounding in the present. And so there is no, there's much less opportunity to re-traumatize because you have that ability to direct someone's attention to safe incoming information. Mm. And it updates the predictions. Yeah, and I mean, this all sounds like quite an evolved way of practicing or, or treating. I wonder, has this always been prevalent since you graduated or is that has, I suppose what I'm asking is, has your practice evolved with time to get to this place? Oh, massively. Yeah, hugely. <laughs> um, I mean, I, no, I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I experiment with all of my patients and myself. <laughs> so, Same. I, and I think it's a really, um, I would encourage everybody to do the same because I think that your practice evolves when you start to have a hypothesis about why this person may be in the state that they're in and test that hypothesis in the treatment and retest to see if it's had the effect that you expected it to. So that's been a huge influencer in the way that I've practiced. The other big influence that I've had in the way that I practice is going into therapy myself and meditating and uh, moving as well. So I've constantly, since I graduated and since I started to see patients at BCOM, I've been continually asking myself, how can I make the most long-term change to this person's life? Because I'm not interested in just short-term pain relieving treatments because I don't want to have people rely on me like that. Um, I don't want to just be maintaining like treatments for a long time that's just my personal preference I think there's a huge amount of value in that but that's not what I choose chose so my question was how can I make this long-term change and, and I had to then ask myself well how do I make long-term changes to my own behavior and what makes me feel like I can make long-term changes to my own health too uh, and the answers that I was getting, none of them were manual therapy. <laughs> how interesting. Wow. Like, okay, how, how do I make long-term change to my capacity to move? Okay. So if I want to be a better at moving, I've got a, an objective. I want to be a better climber. I want to be a better jumper. Right. Okay. How do I do that? So I've got to go and then do some climbing or do some jumping. 
Okay, how do I coordinate those movements? Right, I've got to change the, the way in which I'm using my muscles. So I've got to work with my, my mind. And then I've got to actually use the muscles so they get stressed, so they get stronger and more able to move. Ah, okay, so I'm pushing myself too hard, right? I've got to learn, learn when to, my body is telling me to stop. <laughs> ah, okay, my body tells me to stop with discomfort. That's when I'm stretching too far. It's like, oh, this is probably good for me. Actually, no, no, no it's not. My body is saying, no, this is not good for me. Okay, so I've got to learn how to interpret the sensory information that's incoming. And honestly, learning to interpret my sensory information as valid and as accurate is one of the most useful skills I've ever learned. Um, for example, if I am climbing, I'm doing a move, and suddenly my hamstring is like, ah, oh, this is actually quite uncomfortable in my hamstring. Okay, what's that discomfort? Ah, oh, it's pressure in my knee joint. It's not actually coming from my hamstring. Ah, oh, I am pressurizing my knee joint. Okay, let me move and adjust. Ah, oh, this feels much more comfortable. And now it doesn't feel like I'm pressurized my knee joint. Okay, great. I probably am not anymore then in that case. How interesting. And a lot of what you're saying really resonates um, with sort of other modalities in which I've been exposed to or other people that I talk to. It's just putting it in a very succinct and different way. For example, I went on a CPD course with um, Greg Lehman last week in London and, you know, they talked and it was mainly physiotherapies, that are mainly physiotherapists there. And, you know, they talked about manual therapy and you touched on this as well. And, you know, they were like, well, we don't do manual therapy. We do very little of it. And as an osteopath sitting there amongst physios, I was like, whoa, that's pretty much most of what I do. And it was through, it wasn't until they started to expand or he started to expand on that and talked about symptom modification and things like that, where I started to understand the context of where that sits with other people or other practitioners, whatever their background is. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of what you said earlier about, you know, the stuff that you want to make long-term changes with isn't necessarily manual therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for me, it feels like manual therapy is so intrinsic to anyone, what an osteopath does or how I practice. And it's it's almost, I sat there in the CPD course and it was really jarring, but not in a bad way in a, no. oh, okay, if other people aren't doing manual therapy, what are they doing to make these long-term changes? Mm -hmm. And so even just sitting and receiving this information, I was, I was taken back to last weekend where I was like, oh shit. Like, what am I doing? What am I supposed to be doing? And I can imagine other people might be feeling the same. Yeah, great. And I think this is a perfect opportunity. And I think you summarized it really well because I had the same kind of crisis experience. Like, oh my God, I've learned all these manual therapy skills, but they're telling me that it only makes short-term change to people's sensory information. Okay, I'm just doing symptomatic relief here. What the hell? Um, and I think that, um, I think that there are some individuals who take that too far. And they say, right, I'm going to bin all of this manual therapy stuff that I'm doing because I want to make changes that are actually long term. Now, if you see some of my treatments, I do a lot of manual therapy. And I think it's really important to bring in that conversation about placebo that we had earlier. And again, remind, remembering that all our perceptions are based upon expectations. Um, and since and incoming sensor information. So when I use manual therapy, I think it is um, a 
different intention that I hold with it. What I'm intending to use my hands for is to educate that person about their own body. It is not to change their mobility using this mobilization. What I'm intending to do when I mobilize somebody's shoulder is to um, change the way in which they perceive their own shoulder and are able to understand how their muscles are moving in their shoulder. And hands-on techniques are absolutely fantastic at changing the patient's perception of their own body in a safe way. And I think that is extraordinarily valuable. And I think that does make long-term change for people because you rewire their understanding of their own physical structure. So what that would look like is I would be using my language and what I say to direct my patient's attention to what I'm doing at all times. And my favorite question is, what are you feeling? Because when you ask, what are you feeling? Like if I ask you right now, what are you feeling in your left knee right now? Uh, a little bit of pressure on the medial aspect because of the way I'm sitting probably. Okay. So let's just notice what happened to your attention, right? You were paying attention to me. And then with my language, I asked you a question, your brain interpreted that question, understood the meaning of it, understood that the meaning of that question was to change the way in which I'm directing my attention internally. And suddenly your knee joint lit up to your conscious awareness. Now, In the aspect of lighting up your knee and your conscious awareness, suddenly you are able to understand that your knee is pressurized. And I just noticed you move. Have you just moved that <laughs> knee? Right? Yes. So we can use our language to change the way in which people pay attention. And if you're getting people to then pay attention to what you're doing in terms of their muscles, like, can you feel that this muscle is really, really tight here? Oh my God, yeah, I didn't even know that, that muscle was tense. Okay, can you now relax that muscle? Take a deep breath as you breathe out to try and put your mind in that muscle and turn it off. Oh yeah, I can relax that muscle. Oh, I have control over my own tension in my body. How does your joint now feel? Ah, oh, it feels like I can move it with more freedom. Okay, now let's put that into your walking. Can you relax that muscle during your walking movements? No, I can't, that's really difficult. Okay, then you need to work more with training your ability to relax your own muscles. So the manual therapy is still so present in the work that I'm doing, but it's just, I use it as a tool to educate people about how to gain control of their own bodies better, rather than me thinking I'm actually influencing their own bodies using my hands. Do you see the difference then? That's such a novel way of looking at it. And it's not something that I, in I mean, I'm newly graduated, but not it's not a way that I've been exposed to thinking about that. Mm. At least not in my training. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, you, neither was I. Neither was I. Yeah, it's a shame. And it's one of those things where it's sort of you, you listen to it and it makes sense, but then you're like this is it's like this 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 course I went to it it confused me more than I was I left more confused than when I walked in I thought that was a really good thing <laughs> yeah. because it made me think and it made me reevaluate things and not just say okay what three things am I going to do on a Monday it's it changes it's a whole paradigm change in a way and in a similar way what you're talking about is 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 that on a similar level in a way it's, I hope you don't feel quite as confused by what I'm talking about. No. <laughs> Less confused. And plus, I wasn't in a room with 15 other people thinking, I'm sorry, what was that again? <laughs> yes. I feel a lot more easy to say this to you in a one-to-one. -one. <laughs> yeah, okay. 
um, but yeah, it's it's just it's just not a way. And I'm you know I come from a psychology background. I've you know studied and now I teach it, but it's still not a way that I know how to practice in. Mm-hmm. And that annoys me, mm-hmm. but in a good way. Again, it's like I have these two worlds. I just don't know how to bring them together. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, you know, you've done some of that work, which I'm just going to piggyback off now um, in, in bringing these two approaches and, you know, allowing that to infiltrate in a very salient way in which you treat, mm. but knowing why you do what you do and not just doing it because, well, that's the technique I was taught in second year. Yeah, that is the key. Yeah, definitely. And I think the question that's got me to this point is, um, well, how does this actually work? How does this actually make change? When I'm moving this knee, how does that actually make change to this individual's knee? And as soon as you start asking that question, you realize that, oh shit, I don't actually know how this is making change to this person's knee. <laughs> I can't actually do that with my own hands. I cannot heal that some person's body. I can't stitch together their tissues like, a, like I could with a sewing machine or something like that. No, it's them who has to make the changes in themselves. I am the facilitator to get them to do that in the best way possible because I understand how the body heals, how the body moves, how the body works from subjective and objective sense. Yeah, and so for example, when you have a patient coming in and you know their VAS or their pain perception is is like an eight or a nine or a ten, and you know they're coming in a lot of pain. How would you approach that type of patient? Because we've all been there. And I was there this week and I thought, I have no idea what to do with you. Let's just start doing something and hopefully something feels right. And then we can go with that. But how would you, what would your approach be to a patient coming in, you know, in in an extreme amount of pain and you're, you know, yeah. What what would you do? (laughs) Okay. So let me make this super simple. So you first, if somebody's coming in to you in a huge amount of pain, you first have to understand whether this pain is nociceptive, meaning that there is damage to their tissues and that needs to be healed, um, or whether this pain is coming from the top down, whether it is an interpretation of something, um, which doesn't necessarily need a healing process to be initiated. So you've got to look at this patient and go, are you damaged or are you experiencing chronic pain based upon your perceptions? Because both can be extraordinarily painful. So if they're damaged, then you need to understand how can this person best recover from this injury? So do you need me to strap you up? Do you need me to then take you to hospital? Do you need me to tell you to stop doing all activity for three weeks as we let your muscle strain recover? Is it a nerve problem? Do I need you to make sure that you unload that little nerve root so that you're at least in a little bit of relief while this recovers? If it's a chronic pain situation, then I need to go, okay, so I need to start asking questions about how threatening you are interpreting this information that's coming in from your body and try everything that I can to reduce the amount of threat that you're perceiving at the moment because that is determining how painful your experience is. So then reassurance becomes much more of an intervention. Look, when I move your knee, it doesn't break. It's okay. No, it's okay. I need you to, I understand this. I'm going to help you get better. It's going to be all right. So that's the first thing. Damage, 
no damage. Second thing is what feels good when we do it. Simple as that. We, are, we have inbuilt in us a perception of what feels good in terms of movement, what feels unpleasant in terms of movement. Now, just so many of us have forgotten that this is a primary compass that we all should be using to interpret whether we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing to recover from our injury because we've got messages like no pain, no gain in the gym. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of thankful for that in a way because it, it brings me patience, but like, it's not good when we're thinking about our own bodies. I can send you a CrossFit box referral anytime. <laughs> yeah, right. So many people who are just like in loads of pain, but carrying on. Um, so finding something that the patient can do in that first session when you see them that feels good and then just telling them to do that. It's like, does this reduce your pain now if you move your knee in this way or if you relax your muscle in this way? Okay, if it feels good, that is the right thing for you. And that I don't need to do any, any high-level interpretation on that because I trust your own nervous system to tell you what it needs because it feels good. That's what I would advise. Wow. And it's just, it, it sounds so simple. Yeah. And yet when, when you have a patient in front of you, it's like, oh, it's this big. And you're, I suppose, the one who's more knowledgeable or, you, you know, you're the expert in the room and you're supposed to know what to do. And sometimes. Yeah, but that's where the suffering comes from. I'm supposed to know what to do. <laughs> like, and, and that is one's own mind going, okay, I am responsible for this person's health. Mm. And responsible means response and able able to respond to this person and if you are taking responsibility for everything they've got you take away your ability to respond a lot of the time because then you're freaking out too much about the how much you are able to do for them and if you can't make them better then that means i'm a terrible osteopath and everything's terrible Absolutely. And I, I almost wanted to quit my first year after graduating because I felt this immense amount of not just responsibility, but this pressure. I'm like, well, they're not getting better. What am I not doing? Yeah. yeah. And to the point where I was in tears a lot of the nights and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Yeah. Clearly something's not working. And, and I imagine a lot of other people will face something similar to that. Definitely. I face that a lot for sure. Um, and over time, I've learned that actually I'm not responsible for them getting better. It is their responsibility to get better. And I am a, a tool with knowledge um, that is limited to my own understanding. It's, it may not be the right knowledge that they need in that moment. But it's not my responsibility to make them better. It's their responsibility to use me for what they need. And I am a guide, not a fixer. And as soon as I was able to separate those two things, it's like, actually, your pain is your shit, you know? Like, I'm here, I'll do the best I can. That's all I can do. And if you come home at the end of the day and you're like, I've done my best with this person. They may not be getting better, but I've done my best. That is all you can do. And it's interesting how you talk about that. And it reminds me of, you know, when I used to administer therapy about it. It sounds like a very boundaried approach. Yeah. And 
so my I suppose what I'm asking is how do you create those boundaries in which because we know energy transfers and and we can certainly how, talk about how does energy transfer? Of, I mean in the therapeutic context we talk about transference specifically um mm-hmm. and what I've started to notice at least initially when I was treating you know I would my perception would would be to take on some of the anxiety or the or the worry that some patients were presenting and that would be almost translated as pressure in my own body or my own head and now just talking to you that's what I'm really thinking what I was interpreting back then so I guess my question to you is how do you maintain that not that sort of separateness because we're all human but how do you protect your own sense of being and your own sense of self from a type of transference from a patient or vice versa because we all bring stuff to our treatments too yeah exactly and i think you highlighted it in that last bit i think that if we're talking about transference the idea that word implies that someone is transferring something into you right that is theirs and now it is yours that's never the case they have their own stuff going on the only thing that they can communicate to you is their movements and their language that's it if you cannot move you cannot communicate the only thing you have access to is those things and you are interpreting those things in the context of your own life so if you are feeling somebody else's anxiety That is because what they are expressing to you triggers in you something that you have been anxious about in your past. And so in order to create proper boundaries, you need to understand why it is that you are feeling anxious when this certain context appears. What is it in me that I have learned that makes me so anxious when I perceive this person's context? That's why it's so important for therapists to do therapy, right? oh yeah I'm still in therapy (laughs) yeah and it's a it's it's a wonderful process and I encourage everybody to understand their own minds a little bit better yeah Um, so I mean does that answer your question I could talk about my own experience of doing that or yeah you have you comfortable talking about what you found or what's worked for you or how you interpret it yeah 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 definitely so um, when I was 12, and it's a very young age to, to have such a set, clear career path, right? That's not normal. Um, and going through a process of therapy, I realized that um, when I was young, when I was very young, I have memories of um, taking care of my parents. Um, because I had parents who were like, well, my mother was quite depressed and my father's definitely experienced trauma as well. Um, And so very early on, I learned that um, in order for me to be recognized and valued, and let me be clear about what it means to value somebody else, to value somebody else means to pay them attention and to um, appreciate and to listen to them listening is an act of saying I recognize you and I value you so 
in order for me to be recognized, um, the things that I was recognized for in a positive light most was when I was taking care of other people, either them or my cousin from a very early age. Um, and then I had some very, very difficult experiences when I was young as well. And that taught me that I wasn't able to bring my own emotions into these interactions because when I was scared of expressing them and two, when I tried, they weren't met with recognition. And so this instilled in me um, this idea that in order to try and meet my own emotional needs, the only way in which I can get recognition is through, again, taking care of others, being nice. So it became clear to me through understanding that, that um, that decision I'd made when I was 12 was because I observed my mother going to this therapist and having really beneficial results. She was taken care of well and she was praising this person for taking care of her well. And so I was like, oh, well, maybe I can do the same because this is the way I recognized and valued. And so then this idea stuck and it manifested in me getting to a point where I now understand that that's why I got into this profession in the first place, which has been a relatively recent development. Um, but it allowed me having that recognition to get that separation from my patients being like, oh, okay, so I am in this because I have self-worth and self-value in you getting better. I am invested in this process because of the way I've learned to value myself. And actually, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to just be valued for taking care of people. There's so much more that I want to value about myself. And in that recognition, I was able to have that separation being like, okay, shit, then what's my role here? Okay, I, I feel comfortable enough being a guide. So that doesn't, I'm then valuable for my experience, but not, not valuable if you're getting better. <laughs> do you see what I mean? Mm. Um, so, but I had to go through that process of understanding because it was I was burning out because I was trying too hard to to take care of people. You know, it's just putting that first always because I had to when I was a kid to be recognised. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that. That's such a beautiful story and such a resonating trait that a lot of people, I suppose, in our profession have is is that want or need to help people at its mm. purest level. Mm. And sometimes we know where it's come from, for example, for you. And sometimes we just don't know exactly and we haven't done that work and that's okay. But that sensation of burning out is something that I hear about so often. And so I suppose because of the people I'm talking to are people that have recently more graduated, you know, my peers, my colleagues and things like that. And and I just didn't expect it this soon. Mm. I thought, yeah, like 10, 20 years down the line, maybe then I'll be sick of this. But I was like, why am I burning up my first year and a half into this? And so just listening to that story just gives me perspective and gives me an idea of what processes are at play. It's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we've learned that somewhere, right? Yeah, and that's not something that is necessarily taught or talked about even on training. And I think it's such a it's such a shame because there is so much more than a job or the expectations of a job. 
and nobody really, at least I felt when I was sort of like third, fourth year, nobody, re- I didn't really understand what being an osteopath was going to be, or at least I had an idea of what I wanted it to be, but not how it was actually going to work or, or how it was going to actually happen. And so when then, then, and it's funny bringing it back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of pain, like, you know, there's this ex- expectation and this perceivement and they're not matched. And that's when you get this dissonance and you're like, whoa, I don't want this anymore. And then you make a change, hopefully. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, in time. Yeah, and that can happen as well with your patients. I get this quite a lot when I, because I don't, I'm not a conventional osteopath, right? I don't I treat in the way that often people are expecting if they've seen osteopaths in the past who work in a very structural way. And like they come in and they're expecting a very structural type of treatment, which they felt a lot of benefit for them in the past. And I don't give them that. And suddenly they're like, well, this guy's crap. <laughs> you know, I'm not coming back to him. He doesn't give me what I want. <laughs> and so how would you describe the way you treat? I mean, you've, you've talked about it continuously and I can, you've threaded it through so beautifully, but say someone were coming to you, what would they expect? I mean, I know everyone's different. <laughs> I still haven't quite sussed that one out. <laughs> um, I need to update my um, description of how I practice, particularly on my website and how I advertise myself, because it happens too often that people are expecting something different from what they get. Um, and I think that luckily a lot of people see value in what I'm doing. Um, but I think that it would be great to make sure that I filter out people a little bit sooner than when they're in the room with me um, and they're then financially invested and everything because I want to start aligning the people who want to make long-term change with walking through my door rather than people who are not ready for that process and looking for something that is just going to relieve their pain. You know? um, yeah. And that's, that's yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for that. Um, I need to filter out the people who are expecting something different. You know? And do you find that you attract patients, the type of patients that will match that with you or the way you operate or yeah. your ethos yeah. or your approach? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people start talking about what you do, right? And we get most of our referrals from word of mouth. Um, and when they describe what you're doing and they're describing it, to people who either would like that, in which case they're more likely to come to you or who wouldn't, so they don't. So over time, it seems to naturally get patients who are more inclined to the approach that I'm giving. Absolutely. It's been so insightful just having this conversation. I feel like we could just go on for a couple of hours. I'm not sure how many people would actually listen to it, but at least me anyway, like listen to me talk, but it's been such an insightful, you know, conversation to have today. I mean, part of it has been therapeutic, part of it has been very scientific. Um, and I've just been in it the whole time. But it's such it's such a testament to the way, you know, you 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 speak and you think, you know, part of it is structural, part of it is psychological, you know, and you have all these different caveats. And I'm only starting to envelop some of that, um, at least in within myself. So it's been such a revelation to be able to speak to somebody who doesn't who might not practice in the way that you might expect but has all this other stuff coming into it that influences not just how you treat a patient but how you are yourself Mm, yeah 
Yeah, and it's that's a really nice um, summary. Yeah. And I do that. That's something that I am always doing is going, okay, well, would I do this for myself? You know, yeah. doing that as a primary and not doing anything with my patients that I haven't already experimented with on myself. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today, Josh. I wonder, um, where can people find you either on your website or social media? Um, so I'm quite bad on social media. <laughs> uh, I do have a Facebook page. My um, website is, and my kind of practice name is Fine Health, F-E-I-N Health. Um, and that's www.finehealth.co.uk but please take it with a pinch of salt because I haven't updated it in a while and I need to that's my plan very soon um, and my email address is joshua at finehealth.co.uk and if you want to talk to me then please feel free to just get in touch fantastic and I'll link all of that in the description box below so people can find that a little easier but thank you so much for your time and hopefully we can get you back because there are so many more topics that I have questions for after this <laughs> Yeah, it would be great. I hope so too. Hey, thanks so much. No worries. Take care.